in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my co-host, Brian Fry. And uh, Brian, what if there was another co-host? Oh wait, there is... Also joining us today is Chad Robinson. Brian, Chad, how are you guys doing? Doing well, man. Thanks, Chad. Excited to join you guys, as always. We're going back to ancient Rome. But first, but first, we got to break the ice here a little bit. Got to ask some questions, as we always do. So first off, what is your favorite race scene? This movie that we're watching today has a really great race scene. So the, a race scene, I should also mention, is not a chase scene. So you can't say something like Bullet, for instance, which is a really great episode that we did recently. Um, so, Chad, what is your favorite race scene? I was tempted to say Seabiscuit, but when I really got to think of a good race scene, I really like the goofiness of Grease. At the end with the T-Birds, they're racing in kind of the aqueduct channel, and there's an instrumental of grease lightning. They're going up up the sides. There's even some Ben-Hur influence with the uh, the rivals having kind of the spiked wheels going into the T-Bird. So it's a fun time. Absolutely. I like that one. Grease, lightning, go. Brian, what is your favorite racing? There are a couple of them in this movie, but uh, the, the one that I actually like the most isn't technically a race it's a practice lap that they're doing but it's in sylvester stallone's movie driven yeah uh, where he is a formula one racer and he's uh doing his coin trick around the track where he goes out and flicks uh several quarters onto the track and then as he drifts around corners in his race car he picks them up with the melted tire rubber yeah, and he's doing, uh, I don't remember what song it was, but he was humming to himself too, right? Yeah. yeah, and that's why his nickname in the movie is The Hummer, because he hums to himself while he's while he's racing. Anyway, uh, I, I feel like it's not a super well-known movie, but man, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a new one on me. As for me, I'm going to go with Breaking Away, which is a bicycle race. Just a really great movie, uh, perhaps because I love the movie so much. I love the race extra. Uh, it's a triumphant moment. Very inspiring. If you could go back and prevent any remake from being made, because Ben-Hur today actually is a remake, what movie would you want to stop from being remade? Chat. For me, I hate to be one note on horror, but it's got to be the new Nightmare on Elm Street. The original is my absolute favorite horror movie. And Michael Bay got hold of it. And that's never good for almost any franchise. So apparently ruining the Texas Chainsaw Massacre wasn't enough for him. Uh, it's really not Jackie Earl Haley's fault. But without Robert Englund, there's no point in the movie. I'm still really kind of frustrated about the whole Freddy's now a pedophile. And it made a whole lot more sense he's haunting the parents' kids when it's not something that he deserved. So that one frustrates me. Okay, 
a frustrating remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. Brian, what about you? What remake would you want to prevent? Uh, the Jamie Foxx Robin Hood movie. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just, just no, no redeeming quality to that movie. You're, you're talking about whatsoever. the newest one, Terrence Edgerton in it. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yep. I just, I, I watched it on a plane on the way to Hawaii, and then I wanted that time of my life back. It just, just terrible. And and here's the thing. To be fair, um, I watched the King Arthur one that I would closely compare this to and it with uh charlie hoonan and it was like fractionally better so you can really flip a coin on which one of those two are the bigger turd as for me i uh love tim burton and i would actually like to save tim burton from bad remake i actually almost went with planet of the apes but i actually i despise uh, charlie and the chocolate factory from 2005 more than mm. I do, more than yeah, I do uh, Planet of the Apes, and so not only am I preventing a remake that I didn't want to be made, but I'm also taking one of the two big blemishes off of Tim Burton's uh, catalog that I wish had never happened. That's fair. Uh, can we be clear that the we're talking about the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes that shouldn't have happened because that should not have happened. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but, okay. but the Charlton Heston one it, is good. So, well, well, I'll also say that the newer ones are also. I, I really enjoy those. Those so, are also good. Right. Yes. Good, good, good All point. Right. Not, not technically remakes, more like prequels, but well, well done on that. Good, good rebound from the, the Marky Mark. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about Tim Burton though, because he did Alice in Wonderland too. And that's a bad remake. I would disagree with you on that one. I, I that, that's actually a prequel. Yeah. Still so. shouldn't have happened. Um, or sequel, sequel, sequel. Anyway, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Johnny Depp didn't care for many many parts of that movie so i prefer the gene wilder as do we all yes and the schnozberries should taste like schnozberries <laughs> and not not something else but that's called cannibalism and it's looked down upon in most cultures <laughs> chad what movie are we going to do today we are going to do 1959's ben hers all right 1959 is the year that this movie comes out. The film has a big budget at the time of $15.175 million. That is the most expensive movie of any movie made up to this point in time. It was all in film. <laughs> uh, most uh, That's okay, though, because it grosses $80 million. I see a couple of different figures on that. I've seen 75, and I've seen 80, and I've seen another one, but the extras on my Blu-ray said 80, so I feel like those people know what they're talking about better than the other various sources of the internet so that's my source today on the amount grossed it saved mgm that's right the place is number one in the box office for 1959 so nothing places ahead of it just to give you perspective of how much 15.1 million dollars is in the box office the number two movie that year operation petticoat with gary uh sorry carrie grant and tony curtis grosses 9.3 million this grosses an additional six million dollars over the number two movie so it's it's quite a margin really uh, IMDb gives Ben-Hur an 8.1. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like this a lot and give it 87%. The audience score gives it 89%, very aligned. And if you think that's those are good numbers, well, the Academy Award gave it a couple numbers themselves. They gave it 11, uh, 11 Oscars. It was nominated for 12. 
It won 11 out of its 12 nominations. And to date, the only other movies to come away with 11 Oscars are 1998's Titanic and Lord of the Rings uh, Return of the King from 2004. That means it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in a Leading Role from Charlton Heston, Best Actor in a Supporting Role from Hugh Griffith, Best Art Direction and Set Decoration in Color, Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Special Effects, Best Film Editing, Best Music Score of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, and Best Sound Recording. The only category that it did not win was Best Adapted Screenplay, losing to Room at the Top. It also won a couple of Golden Globes. It came away with three wins there. It was nominated for a fourth. It won Best Motion Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes. And to top it all off, some Legacy Awards, the AFI, American Film Institute, on the 100 Greatest Movies, ranked this one at number 100. So it's in there. When they did it the first time, it wasn't in there, and then they came back and revisited it 10 years later, and they made sure that it got in there then. So it's on the most current, number 100. AFI also ranked this number 49 on its top 100 thrills, and it's number 21 on best film scores. As far as uh, top 10 epics goes, this was ranked number two. AFI really likes Ben-Hur. I mean, this is a this is a staple movie, right? I mean, this is one of those movies that people say, if I were to hand you a movies you have to see before you die, this is one of them, right? Yeah, has to be. Even if you don't enjoy super long movies or even the, the topical points of this, I would actually compare this a lot to Gangs of New York. Another movie I really enjoyed seeing, but not something super high on my rewatchability list. But it's it's something you should see. Like, this, no doubt in my mind. Absolutely. So, Chad, have you seen Ben-Hur before? If so, what were your thoughts then, and what were your thoughts revisiting it now? I have, but I really don't remember it being nearly four hours long. I think I had to have seen either a heavily edited version uh, or, like, a TV special or something. Even if it was a TV special, I would think it would be on, like, the entire afternoon. I remembered liking the movie okay uh, i've always kind of had an affinity for this time period but i definitely appreciate it more now uh, for what it accomplished and just the massive amount of work and undertaking this took brian what about you is this your first time to ben her had you seen it before no i actually own this movie i've definitely watched it before several times uh i i kind of would chat on this i'm wondering if maybe I watch it in parts or I don't know. I, I definitely own it. And it was a, uh, it was kind of a burn for me on this. I ended up renting it for my, uh, my watch for this podcast because I couldn't find it to save my life. When, uh, when iTunes tells you, you have 48 hours to watch a four hour movie, you're like, man, that's a huge percentage of that time. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice if they'd give you an extension. What was your thought returning to it now though? I still really enjoy it. I, don't think that I ever looked at it as critically as I walked, watched it this time, you know, taking notes, really looking at, okay, what do I really take from this? What do I enjoy? What do I not enjoy? It's a little bit different than just purely watching it. I don't remember specifically, I, I don't want to get too deep into this, but um, some of the effects they use for that naval battle scene, I don't think it really hit me at the time just how awesome. Uh, I don't want to say bad they are, oh. but 
I, I guess it, it looked like kids playing with micro machines this time. I, maybe it's a, a high def. Put a pin in that. Yeah. We'll talk yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, this is my first time to Ben-Hur. So unlike you guys, this, this is a new one for me. And I knew it was going to be long when I got sat down. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I, the score right away just captivated me. The feeling was there. The, I felt like I was in Rome. Like somehow I've never been to ancient Rome. Uh, I look forward to getting a time machine and going there someday. But if I did, somehow Ben-Hur sits in my mind as a large part of what I think it might look like. And I really enjoyed the story. That's not a revenge movie per se, but uh, that's kind of I a revenge I think I definitely put it's it in just, a revenge yeah, movie. Okay. It's a revenge movie. Okay. And, and just to be clear, are we talking about like the greater idea of Rome? Because the actual part of this movie that takes place in Rome, like the city of Rome is like 30 seconds out of a four hour. Movie. This in, is Judea. Empire. <laughs> empire of Rome. The, 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 the yes. big, okay. big Rome. Goat, yeah. Goats and Jehovah. Yeah. The, the country realm. Uh, so, okay. but anyway, I really enjoyed it. All positive notes here, getting into it now. But before we go forward, though, I wanted to warn everybody, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So please beware if you haven't seen the movie Ben-Hur and you want to keep these things, or if you're spoiler-adverse, beware. We will return after these messages. President Donald J. Trump here from the White House. You know, America, we don't win anymore. Our podcasts are going over to seas to India. They're leaving across the border to Mexico. They're going to China. It's very sad to see, really. America, I win at everything I do. And if you want to win, too, you got to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and get the Retro Movie Roundtable, an amazing, luxurious five-star review, and comment, tell them how to make the show better, and they, too, will win like I do. That's not all we're going to win by going to like the show on Facebook, and Facebook is going to pay for it, believe me. Also, email the show at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Do this and we will bring great podcasts back to America like my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. Soon you will see we are winning again and you are going to win so much you're going to get tired of winning. We're going to win more than Charlie Sheen. Believe me, I know Charlie. He's a very reasonable man and a very good friend of mine. This message was endorsed by President Donald Trump. Welcome back, and as mentioned before, there will be spoilers that lie ahead, so if you don't want to know what happens in Ben-Hur and you haven't seen it yet, this is your final warning. Having said that, Chad, why don't you refresh people's memories who haven't seen Ben-Hur since 1959? We've got an older audience than I thought. (laughs) Ben-Hur is about an elite outsider with an ancient Roman society who is betrayed by a high-ranking Roman official, is forced into slavery, and has to compete in Roman games while on a path for vengeance. Are you not entertained? So Judah Ben-Hur, who is played by Charlton Heston, is a Jewish prince who is made a scapegoat by his former childhood friend Messala, who's a Roman tribune uh, when a tile falls from a roof and hits the new Judean governor. That actually happened, uh, just not in this sequence. Judah is sentenced to row the galleys as a slave and his family is imprisoned. Judah's galley is attacked by Macedonians and his ship sinks, However, Judah manages to save the Roman consul, Quintus Arius, during the battle. Arius is grateful, so he allows Judah to drive his chariots for him, and eventually he adopts Judah, freeing him. Judah misses his family and returns to Judea, where he runs into the sheik. Judah impresses the sheik, and upon learning that his family is now dead, he decides to compete in chariot races on the sheik's behalf. He manages to compete in a race against Masala, and he wins, killing Masala in the process. Uh, because cheaters never prosper. Remember that, kids. Uh, 
The crowd then does the first <laughs> century equivalent of a court storming. Uh, he's declared a god. That's kind of weird. Uh, with Masala's dying breath, Masala tells Judah that his family are still alive and are in the Valley of the Lepers. Judah blames Rome for corrupting his friends, rejects citizenship, and reveals himself to his family at the leper colony. His family goes to hear teachings from a young rabbi, but it turns out he's now on trial and he'll be crucified. Poor timing on their part. As the unnamed man passes by carrying his cross, Judah recognizes him as a carpenter's son who helped him when he was first sold into slavery. The man is crucified and a storm rages. Miraculously, Miriam and Tirzah are healed, and Judah returns home a changed man, no longer filled with vengeance. Probably didn't hurt that the guy he wanted vengeance against was already dead. Well done, well done. Uh, it's amazing how you can take a three-hour and, what is it, 30-minute movie? 45. A three-hour, 45-minute movie and condense it down to that, but you did a good job. Oh, yeah, that was wonderfully succinct. <laughs> Thank you. So, we have Ben-Hur, A Story of Christ, uh, which is surprising, given that uh, it has that tagline on it because it's largely a story of Judah Ben-Hur. It's interesting that this movie takes place at the same time period of jesus but it's not it they use that as a way of anchoring you to where they are in history do you find the name of this to be unusual or what do you make of the the title of this at least as in this form not so much it's other literary forms brian i mean the whole movie is a is a lesson basically on on not becoming what you hate the most uh i think that they didn't just use it as a time to anchor it in history, but also to tell, you know, the story of, of how this guy kind of learned a, a valuable life lesson and how, you know, even if you have to kill somebody, I mean, like really make it your life's goal to kill somebody. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's redemption too. So you're saying the lesson learned is take proper care with your roof maintenance. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this guy's, did you see how many gold plates and dishes this guy was eating off of and somehow his shingles were loose? He's got to have people for that stuff. It would have saved a lot of problems. <laughs> I'm just saying. You got to have people for that, man. That was one of the weirder scenes I had to translate during my Latin years was a, uh, this actually happened to a, uh, a general named Pyrrhus where a woman threw a ceiling tile it didn't just fall off but she threw a roof tile and it hit him and it killed him nice that was a that was one where i had to raise my hand and say key am name I, am i translating this correctly so if you don't like the mayor uh, be careful if you throw a ceiling tile at him you might kill him <laughs> there are consequences you might find yourself rowing on a boat for 40 years or sorry not 40 years but four years <laughs> so uh in terms of though the story this thing is epic uh, it's a lot to take in. Brian, you mentioned that you broke it down to pieces. Uh, it would certainly do well as like a whole series, uh, like a Netflix series or something like that. Uh, where, But if you binge watch, in a way, you've kind of undone that. So it's, you turn, we watch epics all the time nowadays by, by binge watching. So we've talked a lot about its length of three hours and 45 minutes. Chad, is that too much time? Does it use it well? What are your thoughts there? For the most part, I actually thought the pacing was really good. Uh, whenever Charlton Heston was on on the screen or uh, later on the Sheik, I was really interested. I was engaged. Uh, there were a couple odd instances. I honestly thought that opening, other than the, the music, the music was special. I thought the opening could have been cut, the nativity scene, because uh, and we'll get on to that later as well. But we could have established this was in Jesus's time. 
anywhere throughout the movie. Like that scene <laughs> was a little so, uh, a little lengthy. And also, you know, the Magi were not at the nativity. It's so, a well-known story, though. But the Magi weren't there, and they they're just like, here's Balthazar. So would you prefer tickets of like, or sorry, would you prefer like a like street ticket like scalper being like, get your tickets to Jesus, two <laughs> tickets to Jesus. Look, they took several other instances to reinforce this is during Jesus's time. We could have figured it out. Would you prefer like New York paper boys like from Newsies being like, it's like, Jesus feeds forty. <laughs> I didn't time the whole thing out, but based on the introductory music, the nativity scene, and then really getting into the story, probably the first 25 minutes could have been realistically cut. Wow. That's a a, a ballpark. That's a ballpark. It could have been 15 minutes. It was a big chunk, but honestly, I really did feel like the pacing was pretty good. I did too. The only thing that really struck me is, and by the way, love the score, the intro scene where it says introduction and like it's just got mm-hmm. like a painting of marble with like the words introduction or beginning on it or in, uh, something like so, that, something yeah. like like commencement uh it, it it sits there for at least eight minutes so a third of what you're talking about brian is just staring at a title screen give me something yeah, to look at and that yeah give me something to look at while you're playing that really wonderful music i Upon my second watch through for the podcast, I definitely skipped. I want to say it was like 16 or 17 minutes, and I just basically clicked it and then let it ride from there. Okay. Okay. So a little bit of a slow start, but uh, it wouldn't be the first movie that had the slow start. I always equate slow starts to Deer Hunter. Like, it's fine to maybe enjoy the music the first time you watch it, but, yeah, it's there's there's no reason to – it's kind of like uh, – let me – let me um, – I will – identify it and uh really kind of uh copy and paste it onto the intros for both band of brothers and the pacific like both of them have great intros you should definitely watch them once (laughs) after that after that once every single episode in the miniseries you're just like yeah yeah okay i got it Uh uh-huh cool Uh, yeah there really needs to be a skip intro like come on man you're killing me. And these are two of the most watched miniseries in the world for me. So, like, I've gotten very good at skipping <laughs> through the intro. Like, I've got numbers memorized. Okay, Brian, why don't you give us a cast rundown on Ben-Hur? Well, we've got our uh, kind of main guy who is really locking down movies like this uh, at the time with Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur in Charlton Heston as uh, Judah Ben-Hur. Uh, we have Jack Hawkins as Quintus Aurelius, uh, Haya Harriet as Esther, Stephen Boyd as Masala. Which sounds like a delicious dish, by the way. <laughs> uh, he, he's, uh, he's chicken. Stephen Chicken. Chicken Masala. Hugh, uh, Hugh Griffith as Sheik Alderim, Martha Scott as Miriam, Kathy O'Donnell as Tirza, Sam is it Jaffe or Jaffa or Yaffa as uh, Samanides? I would say Sam Jaffe. We're going to go with Sam Jaffe. All right. Finlay Curie as Balthazar slash narrator. There you go, Chad. <laughs> Frank Thring as Pontius Pilate and Terrace Longden as Darius. Uh, I'll toss in uh, George Ralph as Tiberius Caesar in there, too. There's also a character who's like the number two man to Masala. I just think he has a hilarious name. So Andre Morel plays Sextus. Yeah, it's the early, early, early fad before Tinder. 
<laughs> you sexed this him yesterday? Yeah, we sexed this. He had an important part. He was warning of the troublesome carpenter's son. Again, these are scenes that you can put in that will tell us, hey, Jesus is here. It's true, true. How, but how do you control an idea? Yeah, that was very V for Vendetta-esque. Ideas yeah. are bulletproof. I'll tell you how you crush an idea with another idea. <laughs> Double idea, Trump. Boom. Oh, yeah, I block your idea with my idea. Repel. That was such a weird transition. They just go, there's a Jew outside. Like, that's something to be afraid of. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, you know what? We got to get into this one, actually. Masala and uh, Judah, uh, when they get together and they meet each other, is it me? Or, like, I was literally a little confused. Like, were these guys like an item? Because they're like more than just chummy. I mean, that's actually the whole time I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you know how you have that friend that's an asshole? Like, Masala is definitely like, I, I bet like Ben Hur was just like, all right, guys, Masala's coming over. Yeah, I know. I get it. Just be cool. Like, he's kind of pompous. Ah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Just, you know, you caveat before you introduce him to other people, but, you know, he's still a friend of yours. He's just Ben Hur's asshole. Well, okay, let me say this, for instance. Chad, how long has it been since you've seen Brian? A couple years. Okay, so it's been a long time. So when you meet Brian, are you going to perhaps take a beverage of choice and intertwine arms and drink uh, out of out of locked arms and then stare at each other like with prolonged uh, periods with uh, like an overabundance of eye contact while smiling at level nine? Not level 10. Level 10 looks like you're in an asylum smiling, like you're like the Joker smiling, but level nine smiling like, oh, it's so good to see you again. I mean, only if it's immediately preceded by throwing javelins at doorposts. I mean, I'm game for that. I just want to point out that oddly, like, that's definitely something we would do. Yeah. Like, Chad, I know you've been over, like, when we were in college, I know you were over our apartment at least once when we were doing the blow dart gun. So, Oh, yes. First thing I will say is the second part isn't that (laughs) far-fetched. If I had javelins, we would definitely do javelins. Um, I'll just mark that one, earmark that as a uh, javelin throwing, just an idea for later. But since you brought it up, Russell, I'm going to make sure that happens next time I see Chad. They they threw, that entire scene was set up just for the point where he's on the boat and throws the javelin to show you that he's accurate. Again, we would have believed that he could have made the shot. Maybe it's more amazing that you haven't seen your friend in like several years if you don't have facebook or something like that and you can't just like follow him along it's just like my god it's it's you i can't believe it yeah it's a history or if you're like me and don't really use facebook then i literally have the app just to annoy me with the red bubbles that my notifications bring me as well to follow along with all the listeners who want to engage with us (laughs) (laughs) yeah we love you mark zuckerberg (laughs) <laughs> plug how many camels do you think are in this movie brian <laughs> transition total number all right all right so is this like a, i win the giant jar of m&ms if i guess how many correctly sure okay i'm gonna go with 13 camels chad three 200 camels guys oh see i thought it was gonna be like they used one camel for every shot and then i was gonna be really upset like ah trick question 200 camels are in this movie. 
2,500 horses were used in the shooting of this film, and over 10,000 extras are in this movie. Because I was sitting there thinking that at an early scene as we were watching people traveling on foot in a linear path, like uh, we have this long line of soldiers. I'm sitting there going, like, my goodness, these aren't like dummies or anything like that. This yeah, it wasn't really... CGI at the time. Yeah, and the you know another thing that hit me really quickly of like how big these sets are you can really appreciate i mean again today you have the computers and you can make any scale that you want to have but there's a sense of the large scale visual spectacle here i mean the scene where all the roman soldiers are standing and early on made me yeah. go like my goodness this isn't even like the climax of the movie like look how many people they've crammed into this space this must be huge and it was they, they had to they had literally one of the biggest it facilities to shoot a movie at this time. Yeah, it was something like a hundred thousand costumes, and there was uh, there was a million props, just insane scale. But yeah, that that scene you were talking about, dollar signs just lit up for me. I was like, oh my goodness, they made all of this, and it wasn't like a zombie movie where the back zombie is just got some black eye paint. <laughs> you can't really tell. No, these people were dressed. Yeah. It, so when we said that this is the most expensive movie. It made to this point, I think it we didn't necessarily fully appreciate it that this is larger than life and it's done in a time and where people aren't going to the movie theater. TV has come out and it's keeping people from going to the movie theater. The fact that it is a story of Christ is not coincidental. Uh, movies that had a religious undertone were getting support from church leaders to say, go out and see this movie. So like Ten Commandments did well, for instance, Charlton Heston. This movie did well because it had that religious side of the story to it and the studio knew that the only thing that people are really showing up for are religious flicks and it's kind of like today like if someone was like we need more superhero flicks like you know <laughs> we need we need we need a surefire win on this one put the avengers out there been her to a tale of thanos yeah <laughs> the snap went too far <laughs> We got Masala. What did it cost? Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> ben Hur's got the Infinity uh, Gauntlet. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna toss out a small tangent here. I saw a really really funny meme um, of a rat wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. Basically, the uh, snap allusion to the Black Plague cracked me. Oh, gee. that is good. Yeah, I was uh, like, eh, well played. Brian, is this 15 million dollars well spent? Oh yeah, I mean. Like I said, this is this is a benchmark movie. Uh, this is this is just one of those. Even even if you think ahead of time and then continue thinking throughout, and then at the end you hold the belief that this was not a good movie, you should have watched the movie. Like right. I'm just a believer that if this just isn't your cup of tea, it's still something you need to watch. Yeah, just from a historical standpoint, I think there's a lot to be taken from it because they went to painstaking efforts to research, like what there was a scene where somebody wanted something red in there to eat and so they had a tomato in there and the you know they had somebody saying like nope they weren't eating tomatoes at this point in time you can't have that and they're like well maybe a pepper ah, ah, ah not in rome not at this point in time so they put a lot of effort into getting it right which is something that we think of movies as today doing but they did that then too so i don't know if you're familiar with some of these actors or not but some of these actors uh, were offered the role of judah ben-hur before charlton heston accepted it Burt Lancaster actually turns it down because he found the script boring, and I see conflicting reports of additionally whether he was an atheist or whether he felt it was insulting to Christianity. That's what I saw was he felt it was belittling to Christianity, which I'm scratching my head as a Christian. Yeah, I'm not getting that either. 
I, I yeah. So I, I've I've seen conflicting reports of why he did it, but anyway, he turned it down. Is factual. Paul Newman turned it down, uh, saying that he just didn't have the legs to wear a tunic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like something Paul Newman would say. Marlon Brando, Rock Hudson, Jeffrey Horn, Leslie Nielsen, uh, yeah. which, by the way, that's the guy from the Naked Gun movies, uh, <laughs> were all offered the role. And as were uh, initially a lot of muscle Italian men were suggested who couldn't even speak English. These guys didn't have a very quick uh, or were eliminated. Uh, somebody who wanted the role was Kurt Douglas. And Kurt Douglas, we know from one year later in another Gladiator movie, which was Spartacus. Kurt Douglas was at least offered the role of Masala, but he turned it down because he said, I didn't want to play a quote-unquote second-rate baddie. A little bit of a knock on Masala. I don't know if he's second-rate or not. So, Man, it's it's so interesting to me how people take or don't take parts. It is. like it's If you wrote a book, and literally it was just a bullet-pointed list of actors who took or did not take parts and then their rationale on why, like just something real quick, little snippet, I would read that entire book. Like, it's just so, such an interesting thing to me why people do and don't take parts. We and never... they always play it off, too, like it's no big deal that they didn't take it. Right. Like, oh, there was something wrong with the part. Like, I thought it was boring. <laughs> yeah, but they never... We wouldn't have Naked Gun or Dracula Dead and Loving It or Airplane. Well, then you got guys like uh, you know Will Smith who who passed on The Matrix and then oh, later yeah. did, uh, the, sci- the sci-fi juggernaut After Earth. <laughs> no, he turned down the Matrix specifically to do Wild Wild West, which we've mentioned. Before wiki, 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 Wild Wild. But uh, then you're appreciative because uh, Sean Connery turns down Lord of the Rings because he doesn't understand it, and yeah, he would have been a terrible Gandalf. I don't know. That, that, I, that, that, that no, would be bad. No, no, I'm sticking with Chad on this one. Uh, I mean, okay, anyway, no. uh, tangent <laughs> averted. But anyway. Uh, uh, Martha Scott, who plays Miriam, uh, which not really mentioned, she's just called Mother in most of the movie. Uh, Charlton Heston's mother in this movie is also his mother in Ten Commandments. And one last fun uh, casting note. Uh, also considered for the role of Esther were Pierre Agnelli and then the beautiful Ava Gardner. So probably would have sold a few more tickets had they gotten Ava Gardner in it. But I thought it was really interesting uh, for the for the Jewish characters. They actually cast Americans. And then for the Romans, they cast British actors. Well, of course, if, <laughs> if you need another nationality in film, it does not matter what that nationality is. It's British. Yeah. The accent, I guess, was supposed to seem snooty and oppressive. Yeah. As long as there's an accent, doesn't matter. British, go with it. Well, in fairness, Britain was also the greatest empire that the world had seen for their era as well. And Rome was the greatest empire of the ancient era as well. So, I mean, you know, maybe that, maybe there's an association certainly to American audience of, of that. I don't know. Maybe they just didn't want to have, uh, people, maybe they didn't want to have Italian speaking gladiators where it's like, uh, you know, in the chariot race is, is, is nice. I, what I really don't it, get is Borat is there... doing the, <laughs> no, dude, I, I actually have this guy in my office. He's from Italy and he's, it's, it's nice all the time. It's, 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 it's very nice. Miscusi, miscusi. Yes, uh, you like the curse. No, I. It's just it's it's a continuous wonder to me that out of all of the say French actors and actresses, German, whatever, you can't get a single one. Like really, like you've got to go. Uh, you know, we talked about it pretty pretty in depth on our um, Three Musketeers podcast. 
it's like, come on, guys. There, there's there's got to be somebody. Like, I understand wanting star power, but get some auxiliary behind it with the, the, the appropriate accent. I, you're right. And it just seems to be any movie of antiquity is going to have British accents. Yeah. yeah. In fairness, they sound really nice. They sound snooty. So good job, British. They don't sound snooty. They sound they sound very proper and, you know, very, very elegant. Authoritative. Yes. <laughs> Russell has admiration for this accent. Come on in. Have some of my crap wine. We can lock arms while we drank it. They invented the language. We're the ones who make it sound all mushy. I don't know. Every, everybody in Europe says uh, American accents sound like we have food in our mouths. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time we do. <laughs> and if you're not from America and you're listening to this, for your information, I'm eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich as we speak. Oh, yeah. So the book is written by General Lew Wallace. General Lew Wallace was a Union general during the American Civil War, and he was actually later governor of New Mexico. And he's an author also from Indiana, and he wrote Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ, in 1880. It is a bestseller. It is massively popular. It remains in the bestsellers uh, list until 1936. It has several film adaptations that come from it. It was a play, and its religious sentiment helped market, not market the book, but really helped carry this book to its popularity. So it's kind of funny. In entertainment today, there's kind of a fear, a desire to be secular, to get away from this, but it's certainly, at this point in time, it's one of the things that propelled this to be such a success, both in 1959 as well as what got it to being there. So Ben-Hur, when this movie was made, was a well-known title. I don't know. It's like we keep making the great Gatsby over and over again. We should stop. He's mediocre at best. <laughs> He's not great. Yeah, we should have. We actually should have stopped a long time ago. This movie, the first movie, is made in 1907. It's only a 15-minute long silent movie that's basically just a chariot race. But then they make this movie again in 1925, and it's a silent movie. And but this one runs 143 minutes. And uh, one of the fun things about this is young William Wider is the assistant. Was one of the many assistant directors in this movie. And he is later the director of the 1959 remake that we're talking about here today. There's continuity back to that 1925 production. Interesting. Chad, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the state of MGM. Yeah, they, they were failing. Like this was kind of a last gasp for MGM uh, to save them from bankruptcy. And it really did. It pulled them out of the out of the red really helped establish the studio, which I'm glad for because I love Leo the Lion despite him not roaring in this movie that's that's one of my look for this did you see why that was though yeah the the director felt the kind of serene uh, nativity opening would have conflicted too much with leo the lion roaring into the movie which i don't know that i agree with because it was really a bombastic brass introduction but uh leo the lion is silent at first i respected that notion to keep it keep lying quiet because we're going to go right into Bethlehem. But then I realized we listened to several minutes of music beforehand and it's quite a palate cleanser. It's not like a little jar of sherbet before your dessert comes. It's like a bucket of sherbet. Your palate is more than cleansed. <laughs> this movie was actually supposed to come together in 1956. Earlier in Brando was supposed to be the lead role of that production. So the production kind of fell apart and then it came back together again later. And as Chad mentioned, it was the last hope of the studio. And uh, they said, you can have as much money as you want to William Wider, but uh, if it doesn't work, that's it. Yep. We're going home. And so William Wider was the director on this one. 
And he took he takes the job because he gets a base salary of three hundred fifty thousand dollars, as well as eight percent of the box office grossings, uh, or three percent of the net profits, whichever is greater. Which means he made bank in yes. this movie. His base salary alone was the largest ever paid for a single film, and obviously this movie grossed a ton of money. So he enjoyed the checks from this for sure. Jeez, like that's awesome. He deserved it. Yeah, he could actually take the uh, bet. Oh, uh, Hugh Griffith's character. You uh, mean the Sheik? Yeah, he could, he could actually take Sheik Iterium. The four to one. Yeah, yeah, he could he could take Sheik Iterium's uh, bet at least if he wanted to. He, did he? I don't know. The, did he? Did you guys watch that scene and just think one day I just want to travel around with a chest of money? Yes, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I should not take bets because I would have told you the Golden State Warriors would have won the uh, championship this year, and then. Uh, uh, at the beginning of the season, I would have been like unloading a crate of like money and be like, "Yeah, all that money." I just, I just need to go to a country where there's just such casual racism. They're like four to one <laughs> odds. Yes, that's also the difference between Jews and Romans and Arabs. I'm like, geez. I mean, <laughs> don't beat around the bush. That's what I was saying. Like about that, Masala's whole character is like he's just he's just kind of a. So it's like, kind of take that with a grain of salt because he's like the arrogant Roman. But actually, what what really made me think of it was uh, there's a uh, there's a stand up where uh, the guy's talking about you know old movies and stuff where you know, the Lord like rides up to two people and he goes, "Bring a shovel, we're gonna dig a ditch and bury them. Bring another loyal man such as yourself, and then just tosses them like a random bag of money." And they're like, oh, thank you. And just <laughs> it's like, oh, thanks for this. We're just, just, you know. And I love how you like really took time to like dig in there with the stick. Like, yep, it's full. No fake bottom here. Dollar dollar bills. I, I, the Sheik Iterum's like throwing money around like Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack. Like he's just like, <laughs> here, get yourself a suit and uh, a new face. Well, it's it's even more like additionally entertaining to me that you know if somebody walked in, let's say you did have a a chest of gold, if you walked into any retail establishment and tried to pay with that, people would be ticked, man. They're like, "Come on, man, that's tons of coins. What are you doing?" <laughs> it's like I'm happy. That I would assume you were a pirate. <laughs> This movie shoots in 65 millimeter camera, which cost a uh, hundred thousand uh, dollars. One of which these cameras is demolished in the chariot race. It just falls out of its arm and crashes into the ground. Like I was so tired. Yeah. Uh, again, they spent big on this movie. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. They were they were sore uh, at the camera had been busted. And then uh, William Wyler, Wyler, sorry, William Wyler, uh, he used to joke saying that because uh, he's Jewish, he would say it takes it, it took a Jew to make a good film about Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know he said that. Yeah. Yeah. I think his daughter was telling a story that he would, he said this frequently. So the more, you know, the hardships that Ben-Hur goes through, Brian, are you uh, a fan of like the rowing, the, the nearly drowning, saving somebody's life? I mean, do you feel like this story is coming together well from William Myler and then how it transitions later to this big climactic chariot race and then it transitions to a whole nother thing in the back quarter of the movie? Oh, no, this was fantastic. See, nowadays we use a 30-second montage of a guy loading a submachine gun and then sticking a knife <laughs> in a sheath. But no, the uh, the two and a half hours of uh, showing how exactly he became a uh, a real uh, man's man 
and able to uh, able to defeat his arch nemesis. That's definitely definitely old school. I feel like if this were shot in the '80s, you'd have a that exact montage to simply the best. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a pop culture song that has like rowing drums. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize what went into driving a stick shift boat in Rome. Man, that is not a fun job. I think they just designed the boats to not run on wind specifically so they could have Hebrews row them around. They weren't all Hebrews. I, it, it, and he kept going. He kept going. I was sure. like, okay, that's got to be like battle speed. I was like, okay, yeah, I guess it's a two-speed yeah. boat. And then he's like, <laughs> attack speed. And I was like, no, that's not it. That, you're just making that up to be an ass. And then he's like, ramming speed. And I'm like, dude, come on. There's not four <laughs> speeds. That's shit. We're at 11 right now. Stop. (laughs) Just like, what are we even ramming? At what point do you start playing like death metal cadences and watching people die? Yeah. Did you not get the Mad Max type (laughs) feeling? Valhalla with a guy in front and the flaming guitar. I feel like I would not be good in the rowing boat. I feel like whenever somebody asked me to clap, I, I get out of sync a little more easily than some people. And so I think I would be a bad rower, but, uh, I, I would I still given my bad rhythm and everything I would still be like when is it my turn to drum man you're just up there with the hammers when when are you going to tag out I want to drum some it's way yeah. easier you get whipped and it's like how is that helping yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean give me some Gatorade if you want me to keep going man I'm sweating over here I need some electrolytes come on you know there's no breeze in the bottom of that ship either it's like mm. oh you don't want to ro- oh this man's sick put him in the the what do you what, yeah, that what hold. Do you, the hold <laughs> yeah and on that note too like if they put somebody like in like three floors down underground and leave them there for a long time it's like they're still alive the food's gone and then you go back oh they're diseased hmm. did not know that yeah Oops. we've already seen their their attendants for their prisoners it's like are they still alive well the books say they're here well, I got to hand it to them. That was pretty dramatic because they don't show them. They show the cell where the like the prison guards open up the cell and they just see their faces and they're horrified. And like, what? Are they dead? I mean, this is an overly strong reaction to being dead. And then and they're like, they're lepers. And it's like, yeah, but it's, that was extreme. I was, I was like, is there a bear or something in there? Like they've seen lepers before. Well, it's pretty much not something you want to be around. I oh. felt like the movie made out that them going to prison made them lepers, but wouldn't that have happened at home if none of this had ever happened? Like, that's correct, right? That's how that happened? No, no the bacteria could no. have existed in the cell. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, the, okay. the cells, are you're malnourished, and you're around other people who are disease-plagued. No, I mean, they had the life of luxury. They're, they are in good shape where they were before. Again, I'm just going to say this again. Take care of your roofs, people architectural advice <laughs> yeah but it, it can't leprosy just be something you get is it just a contractable disease or is it something that it's actually not contagious like they thought but no, there was is. a lot of yeah, ostracizing it, contact and air both I okay think it was. I, I, yeah, i've got to i've got to look up some leprosy facts so yeah, everybody we'll, listening we'll, we're just completely conjecturing on leprosy we leprosy. are not doctors if you think you have leprosy go see one it's by and large of of conquered disease, right? Like we're done. Well, with- it it's still no, it's still in the still world exists. today, but it is curable today. Yeah. Uh, we oh, have see, the benefit. I'm just of- rocking it. Like I'm just gonna fake news the death out of you guys. <laughs> 
I'm just I'm Leprosy doesn't missing. exist anymore. Anyway, I'm going to spew information. This is just going to be that disaster episode where everything I say is wrong. Leprosy comes from vaccines. <laughs> Leprosy is a long-term infection. It is a bacterial infection, and a person who is infected does not have any symptoms initially. Five to twenty years, the symptoms develop later, including uh, nerves uh, that, like, like their their sense of feeling goes away. Uh, the respiratory tract has problems. Uh, their skin is scarred and has these boils, and uh, it's unsightly. So, hence the comment of if you will recognize them. Uh, and uh, they have trouble with their eyes as well. Weakness or poor eyesight will be present. And uh, it's a slow-acting uh, way to go, and it's not fun. And it's spread throughout a cough or contact with fluid of the nose a person infected by a person infected with leprosy. So in this, uh, Mary was just, like, constantly cringing when they go into the leper college. She's like, what are they doing? Why would you do that? Like, send them a letter. And like, and like, and and so like, he's like, like, like crying on his sister's cloak. And she's like, he's rubbing his face in his hand in her cloak. And I'm like, yeah, I I admit this does seem a little um, reckless to say the least, but I guess they, I guess they were under the opinion. It was like, Hey, we're going to go to Jesus and he's going to heal us all. It's going to be great. So it's okay. They didn't know that though. They're just like, hey, this dude has really good messages. They didn't seem to know he had any form of healing power. Good point. I don't know. Plot hole discovered. Yeah, they're very uh, cavalier with just waltzing back down into the uh, colony of the leopard. But yeah, it is treatable today with a lengthy run of uh, multi-drug therapy. So if you get leprosy, uh, it's not a death sentence as it once was, but in Rome... It's pretty serious, and you're ostracized from people. And yeah, people probably did throw rocks at you, and as if to say, "Get away!" That was such a great scene. It's like, hey, people, people here. There's a rock. Lepers. <laughs> there's no disease that we do this with today. Thank goodness. And they were just there were women there too, just throwing. It wasn't just random men. It was just everybody joins in. Stone the lepers. Yeah, but I mean, we get to go see. The MCU's Endgame. Back then, they got to throw rocks at people they didn't particularly want to be around. Like, you know, there's like a, a give and take here of like what your you know, your your normal day is. So I, that that could have been like their Sunday afternoon. Be like, oh, what are y'all doing? Ah, oh, we're gonna go out and throw rocks at people we don't want in our near vicinity. Just reminded me of the marriage of Buttercup and Princess Bride. Just people going boo boo. <laughs> so. William Wyler uh, makes an interesting decision to not show Jesus at any point, which may and come from the stage production because they were very cautious about portraying Jesus directly on stage, so they would just use a spotlight on stage, and they would never actually show uh, Jesus at all. And so it's interesting. William Wyler makes a decision to... You never see Jesus' face. You see him from behind or in, at a very great distance, but you more see people reacting to Jesus. Brian, interesting directorial decision. Do you like it? Sure. It adds an interesting note. I, I don't think, I mean, how do you really do Jesus justice? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'll, I'll back it. Chet? Yeah, I thought it was, uh, it was a really unique approach. The only time it, it didn't feel... Like something that Jesus would do is when uh, when he first gives the water to 
uh, Judah Ben-Hur. First, I thought he probably should say something to Judah. He, he typically did. It was a reflection of the story of Jesus and the woman in the well, John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I, I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He says that to the woman at the well. He doesn't say anything to Judah. But the weirder interaction was with the Roman soldier. So he, the Roman soldier is looking at him and he goes through these expressions that's just it's like horrified, ashamed and everything else. But my initial thought was uh, so I used to play Mortal Kombat growing up and uh, there was a character named Cabal that was horribly burned. And one of his uh, fatalities, he'd take off his mask and there'd be snakes come out and he would scare them with his face. And that was kind of the reaction I was getting. Like <laughs> Jesus is staring at this dude and he's just like, ah, ah. And then he just walks away. I'm like, this is a weird thing. Jesus would have said something to either him or to Judah. And he just did not, neither. Interesting take. I hadn't considered Jesus having a snake face. But, yeah. um... No, I, I just, I love the fact that you can drop a Bible verse in one point and then drop a Mortal Kombat. <laughs> I'm a man of many interests. Insert for the next thing. Like, that's just, that's fantastic right there. It's like, oh, and this is why we're friends with you. <laughs> Um, Jesus could have had a you know, terror face right there. Boom. Snake face. <laughs> so according to Charlton Heston, William Wilder, is, uh, he's reluctant to change his mind about anything. So if you come to him as an actor and make a suggestion, he's pretty controlling and he's not really up for doing it another way. Heston said, I doubt Wilder likes actors very much. He doesn't empathize with them. Uh, they seem to irritate him on the set. He gets very impatient with them, but invariably... It always comes together well. He also says that the only answer that I know that is that he has impeccable taste and every actor knows it. And so there's a sense of trust uh, in working with him. And uh, Weiler also told Heston at one point, I wish I could be the nice guy on set, but you can't make a good picture that way. I don't think this is a guy you want as your boss. Yeah, he was known as 40 Take Willie. He kind of strikes me as like the Steve Jobs of directors. That's right. And going back to last week's episode on Miracle, like it's like Herb Brooks, like whistling, do it again. Yeah. Again. He wouldn't give them any direction other than do it better or again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another one. Interesting one where Heston said that he kicked a, a pot in a scene that had no sound. He had him do it like 12 times. And he like, he was like, in, at one point he goes up to him and asks him, he's like, uh, I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong here. Like, can you like, why are we still doing this? And he's like, uh, I liked how you kicked that pot in the first scene. I wanted to do that, but then kind of do another thing. And like, he's like, well, he didn't tell me that. So like, I, th <laughs> I thought I made a mistake by kicking the pot. It's not in the script. So I didn't like, I, it was an accident. Again, there's some of that frustration working with Wilder, but uh, hey, he made a, he saved MGM and uh, he does have great vision. It turns out. Yeah. Discovered Audrey Hepburn. Oh, really? Yes. He uh, discovered her and directed her in her debut of Roman Holiday. Also, Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. Oh. So he is, uh, he's got the, quite the eye for talent in addition to directing. Yeah, and he is loaded up with movies that are later nominated and, win and Oscar winners. Ben-Hur is his biggest achieving one, but uh, yeah, he's, he's an acclaimed director after this. And it's interesting, his career goes back into the 20s. He does, yeah. he does a ton of silent movies as well. Wuthering Heights is terrible in movie and book form. Okay, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> well, since you uh, since you brought up Audrey Hepburn, I'll do my one book plug for the podcast. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, there is a new World War II history book on Audrey Hepburn's time as a uh, adolescent and a Dutch spy during World War II. So, 
book's called The Dutch Girl and definitely recommend it. Is that the one with Eddie Redmayne in the movie? <laughs> no, it's a, it's an actual book it's about her life. Book. The Dutch Girl. Yep. Yes. It's about Audrey Hepburn when she was a teenager and a Dutch spy in World War II. True story. <laughs> Danish girl. <laughs> Danish girl. Okay. I was thinking pastries. Okay. I'm sorry. Back I was to, I was right about leprosy though. So. Back to our sort of. It's not as contagious as you had to cough in their face. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can get not, snot on your hand, and then you touch somebody, you're in, you're you're toast. I'm not licking your snot. Again, rubbing your face in somebody's like cloth, which is like their one article. Of yes, clothing that was a bad out. idea. We yeah. can we yeah. can agree on that. One. Okay. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> I think you should leave all this in. it will be three hours and 45 minutes long just like the movie russell confuses the dutch girl with the danish girl (laughs) chad's hungry Uh, brian what do you think about the the setting uh again we use a lot of matte paintings and backdrops in this but also a lot of really ambitious set work in this so what do you think about the aesthetic I think at any given time, if you're watching a movie like this now, it's going to take some getting used to. What? And I say that because we take so many high definition things. And then when you remake them in Blu-ray or something like that. So you're, you're basically watching something that was filmed one way. And now they're they're sharpening it to the nth degree. And it gets to a point now where if I watch something old enough on a high def tv in high def things just look faker than they did like they still looked fake when you first saw it you could watch it in vhs and be like yeah that's clearly you know models or whatever but when you watch it in high def you're like wow maybe too far hold me back chad boo hold me back boo this man in your opinions (laughs) what is it your opinions are bad and you should feel bad Oh, man. Uh, Chad, uh, counter that, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I I love it. It's bright. It's vibrant. Uh, you really feel like you're in the ancient Jerusalem, Judea area. You see kind of the splendor of Rome, even in a uh, far-out province. So you're saying at no point in time in this movie are you thinking, yep, that's definitely staged. Yep, that's definitely... I mean, I'm I mean, it's not the 50s. saying... It's- I'm giving it a little bit of a pass. Oh, no, no, no. But see, that's just it. I'll, I'm not talking smack on it. I'm just noting the fact that watching something like this now, it's going to be noticeably a little faker because it doesn't have that production polish, that technology that wasn't available at the time. So I'm not saying they did a bad job at it. I think they did a fantastic job at it. But when you do watch it in the technology we have now, that that's got to be there. Like that's got to mess with your willing suspension a little bit. Personally, it actually does another thing for me and you can call it nostalgia for a time that I wasn't alive in, if you would like, but these paintings in particular with the backdrops, I appreciated this in the wizard of Oz too. And it's really interesting how they do this. They block out part of the camera and so that it's black and they actually go back in and paint over the film or they put a giant backdrop behind them and they act in front of it. So it's precursor to blue screen. Either way, it's really beautiful, the craft that goes into these things. And they're done with angles of the sets and whatnot that 
if you watch like a movie like Metropolis, yes, it's it's a set, but at the same time, it's stylized in a way that helps you escape and feel the magic of movies. So I think you can see the evolution of coming from a theater production into movies at this era, and you see that evolution to film, whereas now it's just so realistic, you don't necessarily get to appreciate how much work goes into that. In a way, movies to me are an extension of the stage. And when I go to a play, I don't think, man, that house is real flat. <laughs> um, I can I, I can see Fry's point with the special effects and lighting. I did feel that was probably the weaker point of the movie. Uh, I was fine with a naval battle. I know you're you're picking on that a little bit. My my issue was like the the nativity star was clearly like a luminescent ball on a string and it just looked goofy to me like a 70s yeah, bad cheap sci-fi well, yeah, i i actually think that, that both of you are missing my point in two different directions i'm not bashing anything i'm just saying that it's it's present in my mind when i'm watching this the time period in which that's where special effects were and that the more higher definition you try to make something the more the 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 fake nature of it comes out. That's not a critique on whether it's bad or good. That's just stating the fact that it's there. Good discussion though. And I think, I think it could come back again in the future, but I mean, good for you to clear that up as well. And um, the chariot race though, so much of this is done in a real way. They actually did do this over a course of five weeks. It took to shoot this chariot race and they built this enormous set. It took them a year to build this construction. You would never do this again in this way and the actors themselves they wanted to put the cameras right up in their faces and so charlton heston and stephen boyd are uh, learning to actually ride real chariots and they're doing this for real and they had to train horses years in advance to make this movie so that they could actually have these built teams that could be capable of doing this yeah the sheer accomplishment of that is is incredible i mean no this is the best chariot scene of all time it's still good because they pretty much did it. Was the race fixed? Charlton Heston said, yeah, I knew I was going to win. But I mean, <laughs> there's a great mm-hmm. sense of realism to it, he said. It's the WWE. <laughs> Can somebody tell me how they allow this, the spiky wheel trick? Right. Like, how is that okay? That was something I wondered. Like, like is he cheating or did just everyone else decide to play fair? I, I complained about this as well. But Mary pointed out just prior to the race, someone points out, there's no rules out there. Yeah. Yeah, they do. But like, why is he the only one that thinks this is a good idea? I can only surmise that it's the Roman doing it. So they want the Roman to win. So it's kind of like how LeBron James gets preferential calls in the NBA. <laughs> it's like he, get, he gets an extra step. Oh, yeah. Kyrie doesn't get any of that benefit. There was such a weird reaction from the crowd, too. Like if someone gets trampled, I think even if you're somewhat used to it, your immediate reaction is going to be, oh, not yeah it was just weird i don't when the one guard like basically fell under a chariot everybody was like yeah and you're just like yeah that's kind of one inept guard (laughs) (laughs) but anyway uh it's interesting heston also kind of talked too about like driving the chariot i didn't realize this about chariots uh you they slide obviously the wheels have no ability to turn so the skill goes on the horses he talked about like how you have to have your 
your strongest horse on the inside because it's the one that bears the weight of the chariot as it goes through, but you have to have your fastest horse on the outside because it's the one that goes around the outside. And I mean, he really got into all this stuff. And it's kind of cool as an actor that you get to immerse yourself in this world. I mean, he really was into it. He practiced every day. Yeah. Uh, His advice to the sheik was solid. Move your steadiest one on the inside. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's apparently legitimate stuff yeah. is what he was saying in the commentary. So, um, and by the way, the grandeur of those stalls before they start, like where the chariots start behind that giant colonnade yeah. and this and the racetrack with that huge sculpture in there, man, that's that's really amazing. One reason my my have taken five weeks is uh, every time that the chariots would come out and do like a scene, they would then have to have someone go back and rake the dirt so it looked like it was fresh. Mm. That raking process took like a whole day. Oh yeah. <laughs> go rake the track. I don't want to rake the track. Nope, your day to rake the track. <laughs> and yeah the extras look good too by the way in this crowd this they put so many extras in this movie it, it pays off i mean again i feel like you're in this roaring coliseum yeah how many people do you do either of you remember how many people are in the coliseum i don't know but i mean it was in the tens of thousands i thought but it was just it was impressive seeing all that i was there for the dark knight rises um, i was one of the extras in the Gotham Stadium, and we did not feel fill Heinz Field. They uh, they really just shot specific angles, and it really seemed like they tried to fill this Coliseum. Can you find yourself in the Dark Knight Rises? Yes, yes, I can. During the Pledge of Allegiance, we are there. Heinz Ward, Some interesting six things. points. Yeah, the the greatest CGI was making Heinz Ward fast. <laughs> he never said he was fast. He was just he was just tough. He outran bombs. Jet. He won with heart. Yeah, actually, That's one of my favorite I actually players. laughed my earphones off. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Meandering podcast. Unbelievable. <laughs> anyway. Three hours Steven. and 45 minutes. <laughs> I think we're going to go long. It's going to happen. But it's, you're welcome. I'm not going to apologize for being long. You, you get a bonus. <laughs> uh, so uh, Stephen Boyd, uh, Masala, he actually has blue eyes, which uh, kind of caught me off guard why they would have done this. But he they make him wear brown contacts in the movie, which I didn't know they could do that back then, but they could. Uh, but it just turns out everybody on the set seemed to have blue eyes. And William Wyler said, there's too many people with blue eyes in this movie. That's their way of being culturally sensitive, by the way. He's like, you wear brown contacts. The Jews are a well-known people for having blue eyes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Also, Stephen Boyd mistakenly grew a gigantic bushy beard for the role, only to find out, again, they were always on guard for what was historically accurate. They pointed out that no Roman general or... Anybody of nobility in Rome's not going to have a clean shaved face. So you got to. So he worked really hard on this beard and he's like showing up. He's like, look, guys, I made this beard. And they're like, shave that. He's like, oh. And then also, Stephen Boyd's a good bit shorter than Charlton Heston. Uh, he, he's four inches shorter. And so they had him wear platforms in his shoes so that he would look like he was uh, standing up next to uh, Charlton Heston uh, at a more equal, equal level. Well, yeah, you've got to be level when you're locking arms and drinking wine. Yeah, which, by the way, I still think is weird. <laughs> still. I'm going to come back to that. Brian, next time we see each other. Yep. We'll, we'll take a picture and send it to him. Yeah, Chad's going to be drinking a Baja Blast, like Taco <laughs> Bell, like it, with interlocked arms, and Brian having a chalupa in the other hand. Do you? Do they still make Sobe? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so Sobe, if you'd like to sponsor us, we'll, we'll gladly sell your product. <laughs> 
and we have to mention it because people get upset by it and uh you know you would never do this today uh hugh griffith is uh, a british man but he's in brown face and he plays uh, the arab sheik uh, so he won an academy award for this that's true <laughs> so he did it well he's the robert downey jr of his time <laughs> I liked his character, I have to admit. Like, yeah, I, mean, I did too. He, he was fascinating. I loved it. Yeah. Just nowadays, you kind of got to get someone that uh, looks the part or not paint their face. By the way, Jake Gyllenhaal still not the Prince of Persia. Uh, that, yeah, that's yeah. that pretty brutal. See, it's, 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 it's better when you're good at it, like, like, uh, like Hugh Griffith is. Yeah. But if you're bad at it, like the Prince of Persia, which... It was just bad all around. Yeah, there was nothing. Okay, real real quick, real quick. This is massive tangent, but I've got to ask the question. (laughs) Has there been a good video game movie? Uh, movie, Are you saying a movie that was made off of a video game or a video game that was made out of a movie? The original Mortal Kombat. I will stand by that. I love that movie. I will give you you that that's watchable. But like Resident Evil, Assassin's Creed... Prince of Persia. The original Mario Brothers well, movie. Doom. You know what? I'll stand by the original Mario because it's one of those like fantastically bad movies. There's one made off of a board game that's good, and it's Clue. Jumanji. Also, no, Jumanji. none of the Jumanji movies were good. I Jess will stab me for the Robin Williams one. That's fine. I'll take it. I contest you and say both of those are good. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed both. Uh, so, uh, Brian, we talked about this earlier. Tell us again why the miniatures of the uh, sea battle didn't do it for you because short of the the prow of a ship bursting through the wall which happened slowly because they it didn't come in fast enough they needed to make that set crash faster after that though once they go up on stage you got the fire going around you got people swinging from boat to boat i'm I'm into this they actually did build um a pretty sizable set these aren't micro machines They're, they're they're large in a controlled environment. The thing that got me the most was the uh, flaming javelins that they were firing because however they uh-huh. had it set up with the the boats rocking, which you could tell scale based on how the boats were rocking. But uh, <laughs> it, it a couple of times when they, they shot off the, the flaming darts, not only was the trajectory wrong, but you could see them actually catch the wind and, and fall away from what they were shooting at. Okay. I actually did not notice this on either pass. But. Yeah, it's stuff like that. If you look at, like, whenever they actually show a live-action shot of them firing them, the angle is, you know, level to, say, 15 degrees up. But then when you see them actually shooting off the ships on a zoom-out, they're going up at, like, a 48-degree angle and then kind of fading off to the side. Brian watches his movies with a protractor. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but you're right. Lesson learned, though, uh, the reason they probably did the miniatures in a controlled uh, Culver City uh, environment was because in the 1925 version, which I I got to see footage of in a documentary about this, uh, they actually used full real ships and they used real full out fire. Now, that sounds really exciting and good, except for there was a fire that (laughs) broke out and people ended up jumping off the ship. One of the mandatory questions as being an extra in this movie was, can you swim? But people lie when they want to work. <laughs> and unfortunately, people jumped out of the water and um, the ships are on fire and people literally died on the camera. And they yes, used they the did. footage, though. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so it's 1925 and it's not real clear 
what that death well, was. Well, OSHA really wasn't a thing. <laughs> it was not. Here, here, here's Bill going down. Leave it in. <laughs> but Brian might watch that 1925 one and go, you know what? This is real. This is <laughs> legit right here. <laughs> you know, Things are on fire. Oh, I'll put it to you. That guy looks like he's actually drowning. It's so realistic. I, again, this isn't a criticism, but it goes back to one of the things. It's, it's a pet peeve of mine in television. Whenever you see someone get handed a cup of coffee and you can tell by the way that it was handed and the way that it was taken that there's nothing in the cup. It drives This man takes his coffee seriously. Well, all right, fine. Any sort of beverage container that is opaque. It's it's it what? Trust me, if you go back go back and watch How I Met Your Mother and outside of them anywhere other than the bar where you actually can see liquid in the glass, it's a, it's fake. It's it, it. You can just tell. It's this is going to ruin things for you guys. Okay, I I'm, I did wish I didn't know that. <laughs> the naval battle was cool for me. Like again, I liked it. Ro- Rome was Rome was terrible at uh, naval battles. It was just something they generally tried to avoid. They actually adapted their naval tactics. They brought these little planks over. So there was there weren't ropes that they were swinging over, but there were planks that will lock on to the other trireme or the other boat. So they could go over and they could fight on foot because that's what they're good at, stabbing you at close distance. They really were terrible. It seemed to work well for them because they amassed quite an empire. Yeah. Well, they they did win that fight, but uh, Arius's ship went down. True. I like how he tries to commit suicide because he's so ashamed at the loss and like, I got to go down with my ship. And it's interesting in that Ben-Hur keeps him from killing himself. And in the end... He comes back to realize, like, man, it's really good I didn't kill myself. Uh, I'm a hero now. Yeah, <laughs> I get a parade. Yeah, which worked out great for Ben-Hur, too, because uh, he, I guess he's still made to be a slave because they certainly couldn't let him off the hook. But this movie makes slavery look really good, by the way. Which part? Ben-Hur is really nice to his slaves. Yeah, like, he's just like, all of a sudden, he's like, you're free. And by the way, if you want to marry me, you can. I mean, like, or like, uh, you know, by the way, my son's dead, so I'm going to give you my entire empire to my slave. Yeah, the, uh, the initial, you're free, want to kiss thing. Yeah, like, there, that was odd. Cause... There was like five minutes where slavery was okay, and then there was a giant chunk in the middle where it was horrible. <laughs> the rowing is bad. That's just true. This is true. But... I'm pretty sure slavery is more rowing and less getting an inheritance of a massive estate. Oh, yes. well, he was adopted. He became young Arius. True. So it's just like uh, Augustus Caesar. He was not Julius Caesar's son. He was adopted. Fun facts. Yep. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, if you can't tell, Chad's dropping some serious history nuggets on us here. Uh, masters in history from Duquesne University, right? Yes. That's why I write code for a living. <laughs> well... If somebody asks you what are you going to do with your history degree, you can you can tell them it's, it's working out for me. I write code and owe money. <laughs> Soundtracks, Brian. What do you think about this? In my opinion, awesome score. Oh, it's fantastic. I think the music's great. Obviously, we've touched on the intro and then the intermission and then the outro. But yeah, I no, I wouldn't change a thing based on the the music. It's it's a it's an epic score for an epic film. There's a nine-minute chariot race scene in this, and it's the longest composed piece for a movie at this time. So, And I should uh, say it's Miklos Rosa that did the uh, score here, and 
I mean, to me, this is up. The, I, I was not familiar with this movie or the music, but to me, this holds its own with Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's it's it is that good. Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know if it's still true, but it it was the longest score ever composed. There's 110 minutes of music. I believe I, it. I played the the French horn, so I always like these bold, brassy type. Uh, scores and that's what this was it just had that kind of punchy in your face trumpet brass sections going quite a bit there were there were times when uh there were driving trombones for the rowing scene to mimic the the percussion the driving uh, of the drums so you were just waiting for some orcs to come out of a hole in moria the whole time and dun 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 Again, it makes the sets that I am enthralled with more spectacular to me. Somehow when you add a great score, it makes anything better. Yeah. You could be sitting there eating a Happy Meal, but then like if you sit there eating a Happy Meal to a great score, you're like, oh, this is an amazing Happy Meal. (laughs) It's epic. Um, Maybe not. Maybe it's just a Happy Meal. (laughs) But (laughs) Brian, look for this. Um, one of my my big pieces for this was uh, how you'd already touched upon how they they painted over the film for some of these backdrops. I love the ingenuity. So it's not really a look for this specifically to this movie, but I love the ingenuity that went into making these fixes before the technology was available to do fixes. And I think that it's it's a hallmark of so many 1920s on to, say, 1960s films of smart people coming up with very innovative solutions to fill in where technology wasn't there yet. Oh, he's completely redeemed himself earlier from saying the boats didn't look good. That just warmed my heart. Chad, look for this. You can actually see Charlton Heston's stunt double be thrown out of his chariot during the the big chariot race. He winds up on the lip of the chariot. He did manage to climb back in, so he wasn't trampled like other people. Uh, those were dummies that were trampled. But yeah, someone actually did get thrown off. And unlike the 1925 movie, they lived. See, uh, now that would have been a great segue to the 1925 movie if they were like, all right, some of you extras, you're going to have to be trampled. We're going to need. <laughs> there was an actual pileup in the 1925 one as well. Like the chariots smashed into each other. and like, Yeah, uh, that was a tragic loss of horses. Yep. yep. Well, the guy that died too. That's sad. Like, <laughs> again, they didn't care about people just, back just, then. Just... They certainly didn't care about horse injuries. <laughs> but I, I want to make it clear. I'm sad about the human loss too, but a lot of horses died in the 1925 movie. It was pretty appalling then they lost that whole um, disclaimer at the end of it saying no animals died in the filming of this movie. Oh, we can't put it up anymore. Yeah, that wasn't even necessary. It was just assumed animals were harmed. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't worry. We made all of the horses in this movie into dog food afterwards. Oh. <laughs> Too much? Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's the first movie remake to win an Oscar for Best Picture. The Actually, is another movie, though, that wins uh, an Oscar for Best Picture. And it is the second remake. And it is The Departed from 2006, which I did not realize is a remake. I didn't either. That either. So, remember that time we did a podcast about movies, and then we didn't really know all that much about movies. 
We're getting better. Yeah, we're working on it. It's episode 40. I mean, we're sounding very legitimate. <laughs> we, uh, we mentioned it earlier about the face of Jesus never being shown, but the actor is also uncredited. He was an opera singer, but uh, the actor's name out of reverence was not included in the film. Hmm. Interesting. Jesus was a good singer. <laughs> he had a heavenly voice. Absolutely. So, and then another one that I'm going to call out here is uh, someone did the math, and I'm not a historian, so grain of salt, the, the internet told me this, which, so you know, it's the internet's not wrong on anything, right? Always true. Always true. The sum wagered by Masala against the Sheik at four to one odds on 1,000 talents would be the modern day equivalent of approximately $660 million. Oh, my God. Ooh. That, wow. Okay. <laughs> so that's how much, like, that's why he was like, ooh, ooh, that's a lot of money. But don't worry, I'm a Roman. I'm better than you. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. Hubris. That's a lot. So, <laughs> so the, Sheik, uh, the Sheik cleaned up on this movie. It was interesting, too. Uh, while we're throwing in historical things, everyone's talking about, oh, they're worried about the Jews and they're destroying the statues and things like that, and they're uneasy. But yeah, the... Like, it was clearly anti-Semitic, but at the same time, uh, the Jews actually did rebel against Rome. It, it was 140 years later, but that uneasiness in the Judean region stuck around. Uh, it was a Maccabee revolt. That's actually why Hanukkah is celebrated. That was during the time of the revolt of the Maccabees. Man, it's great to have somebody with some historical background on here. He plays the French horn. He does history. Uh, sorry, he does programming. Which I'm not sure how the show's ever going to use that. No. Zero, one, one, zero, two, zero. Oh, no, I threw a two in there. See, I'm not good at Fail. Um, <laughs> fail. Ruined binary. Yeah. That, this is the kind of new stuff our new host is going to bring to the show. I like that. Um, for, for those of you who uh, listen to uh, ESPN radio out there, Chad is making me feel like the Stugats of this, uh, this show today. Oh, <laughs> I, I love that. that. I, I, I will be the Stugats in every other category other than religious history. <laughs> I'm just over <laughs> this here. This is my wheelhouse. Spewing out fake stuff. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> He's dropping. I learned today that, <laughs> that drinks don't have liquid in them frequently on TV shows from you, Brian. And, it's changed my world. I, I love how, like, that's the most meaningful thing I've added to this show so far is how the coffee cups don't have actual liquid in them most of the time in film. And, you know, Chad's dropping Bible verses on us, like actual historical fact. I mean, the, really, he's he's carrying the, like, lion's share of the, the, the actual substance of this is what you should take away from this film. <laughs> Well, this is one that everybody can uh, has a good say on. It's time to hand out some awards. Brian, are you ready for some awards, man? Yeah, I'm just desperately looking for a dunce cap right now. I might go sit in a corner after I'm... <laughs> uh, uh, Chad, you ready? I'm ready. MVP, you kick us off, Chad. William Wyler. Uh, a film on this scale was just kind of unheard of. And uh, still, it's an amazing accomplishment. Just the amount of work and polish this movie had that's a great choice uh brian uh, i actually have the same thing this is probably the first real epic i remember watching definitely got to give it up to the director for uh saving an entire theater company movie company you know what i was gonna pick charlton heston i had it written down on my sheet pick charlton heston but somehow 
I, you guys have talked me into it. It's it, it's it's William Wyler. I'm talking about all this great work that he's done here. Absolutely ambitious. Uh, working 16-hour days for prolonged periods of time. Uh, he had the vision to bring this through, and he pretty much saved not only MGM, but in a way that it was a return to get people back in the theaters. So who knows? If we're not doing this TV, probably wins out, and we're not doing this podcast. We're doing retro TV roundtable, which A, doesn't have a very good ring to it, but B... <laughs> I don't think you want to hear us talk about the Jeffersons. Hey, listen, Metro I, Radio hey, Roundtable. I could, ooh, I could do an entire show on the X Men or Batman or Spider Man cartoons of the '90s. Oh, X Files. I've got Bewitched down. Okay, they changed Darren's apparently. Yes, they did. Uh, Dick York is better than Dick Sargent. Hot take. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> best supporting actor, Chad. Despite the issues with the brown face, I think it's Hugh Griffith. Uh, I I loved when the Sheik was on screen. He was a fascinating character, and I just wanted more scenes with him. He was a lot of fun. Yeah. Again, if you're going to do it, at least be good at it. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that, Jake Gyllenhaal? Uh, Brian, best supporting actor. I definitely want to go first next time because so it doesn't sound like I'm just copying off of Chad the whole time. But uh, I completely agree with that. Uh, can I say he was the most entertaining character in the entire movie? I'd agree. And it was such a small part of a big movie. I'm going to take the path less traveled on this one and go Jack Hawkins, uh, Quintus Aris, uh, Arius. Uh, very, he's the commander of the boat telling people to, to row. And he, I really liked his character. He had a big presence in this movie. So I, I liked him. And actually, I want to call out real quick. Why do you believe that he did tell them to unchain uh judah ben-hur and this I, I i did not have a good answer for that so the boat's about to go down he doesn't know that and he unchains him he Why? I, well initially he respects his restraint he identifies by the look on his face and the, i think he really part of him understands the fire that keeps him alive and once he learned a little bit more about him and you could even kind of tell the respect that he had for uh charlton heston and when he says you know what bring you know what got you here and he's like tell him the story and he says my my mother and sister were innocent and he goes but you weren't and he goes would saying it one more time make any difference like i feel like that whole dialogue between the two of them just showed a quickening respect and kinship that he had not seen in slaves past. I think some of it goes back to with uh, Charlton Heston's or Judah's time with Jesus. When Jesus gives him that water, you can see in the shot when he's revitalized and there's actually a different coloration to Judah. It's not just regular water that Jesus has given him. And so I think that made him stronger. I think it made him It's like stand Fiji out. water? No, it's wine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really expensive. <laughs> but uh yeah there's there's a lighting difference on judah when he stands up amongst the other slaves they're dirty he's shown his clean he's got more strength and i think it lends back to his interaction with jesus okay and I, again i really dug the scene here uh between quintus and judah and so that's my supporting actor thank you for basically explaining why i picked that brian better than i could myself oh, no so, problem. uh hidden gem 
uh, chat. Oh no, Brian said he yeah, wants to go well, first here. So I, although uh, if you take mine, I'm going to be upset. I, I only go in a circle. I have a hard time with this mix mash. So uh, hidden gem, Brian. My hidden gem is the father of Esther, his uh, future love interest. I like the interaction that he gives with Charlton Heston, not only introducing uh, kind of the daughter into the uh, the mix, but also with how he stays loyal to him. Obviously, injuries are involved in that really showed kind of the the scumminess that they were going for with Rome and how they've treated this man and his not only his family but his his servants as well. So Simonades uh, or Sam Jaffe is the actor, right? Yes, Sam Jaffe. Okay. Interesting thing about Esther or Hea Harit that you brought her up. She's the only non-American uh, Hebrew in the movie. Yep. She's Palestinian. Fun facts. But enough with facts. Here's Chad. Uh, Ouch! Yeah, yeah, that's how you. That's how you intro me, man. Uh, I'm going with the drummer on Arius's ship. I don't even think they had an actor associated with this. I couldn't find one, but that guy had to be absolutely exhausted. He's keeping a good tempo. Oh, he's and, exhausted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other people, I'm sure, got a break, but during these takes, I mean, just the the pounding, consistent uh, rhythm that he's putting out. And especially when they're going at those fourth and fifth gears that Brian was talking about. I was impressed. I'm going to go with uh, Claude Heater for my hidden gem. He plays Jesus and uh, he's uncredited. Way to play a big part of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Recast. Chad, who is your recast? I'm going to recast Masala. And who I want in that role is Christopher Lee. Oh. I kind of wanted more of a Francisco Scaramanga type vibe from Masala, not the chummy old buddy. Just a little bit more. I was going to say, he's going to have a hard time at the beginning. I want a little bit more villainy of like, hey, I'm introduced to this dude. You say he's a friend, but I don't trust him. You say he's just a Uh. friend. (laughs) Uh, Brian, uh, recast. Um, I want to go with uh, Charlton Heston's character, but I want to do it in lieu of let's ignore the 2016 remake of yes. this movie. Yes, please and, do. And <laughs> uh, just understand that I'm taking this from a point where I, I would love to see a modernized remake that keeps the majesty of the original. And I was thinking I'd really like to see Vigo Mortensen play Charlton Heston's uh, Ben-Hur. Oh, hmm. I like it. I, yeah, that probably would have turned out better than what they did, perhaps. I don't know. Anything would have turned out better. I haven't seen the remake. I I actually haven't either, but I've heard really bad things. In less than 30 seconds, Chad, why is the remake bad? C-G-I. Okay, well then. All that comments about the sets looking fake potentially looks bad at early CGI. (laughs) Listen, mate. They're trying to keep it consistent with uh, poor current day technology. Okay. All right, then. Uh, so my recast is going to be Finley Curie. Uh, he plays Balthazar. Uh, he's the man with the like white beard and kind of like he's like, I'm quite sure this this man is the son of God. And he's also the narrator. I don't know why. I, I didn't I didn't like this guy. He didn't have the presence I was looking for. So I want some I want some presence for Balthazar. For one, if you have a name like Balthazar, you need some have some presence. Otherwise, you're going to get beat up. But uh, I'm going with Lawrence Olivier. For this one. Mm, I like it. Nicholas Cage played a guy named Balthazar. <laughs> uh, so did Gavin Rosdale. Yeah, it was that was a fascinating thing though that I've never considered. Like the the Magi going back to Judea like thirty plus years later and checking up on Jesus. I was like, huh. 
I never thought about that. You just kind of think, hey, they checked out the the young child and then peaced out. But no, that was, that was a cool plot point. Oh, yeah. So much more than Murr. <laughs> but um, where am I saving Ray? Yeah. Best shot, Brian. I will go with any of the aforementioned times where they use art tricks to show background. Um, I think all of those are – it's fascinating to me. Uh, also, uh, hats off to the artists that made them happen. It, it, they do look great. I yeah. mean, and I mentioned it on the Wizard of Oz episode too. It just, it's just, it's so cool. If you want to go with, in, just in terms of a stirring moment though, I would say the reciprocation of Ben Hur to Jesus giving him water and how it almost, they made it seem that via just touch, Jesus realized who he was. Hmm. I, I do like that as well. Chad, best shot. Uh, Russell, you touched on this earlier, but there's a zoomed out shot of the circus while the riders are pulling up to their starting positions. Trumpets are playing this loud overture, and it's really part of Weiler's style. He likes to basically cram as much as he can in the shot, get both foreground and background. This was something uh, he specialized in, and it's just a majestic shot. Mm, I get great pick. I considered that one, and what I'm going to go with for my best shot is when Esther and Judah are uh, together, and they're in an interior space, but it's dark, and the the outside light is coming through a very silhouetted screen, and it's a it is a touching scene. It is a romantic scene. I've been accused by somebody else on the show saying like, oh, "You're just a softy," but um, I guess I am because I really liked this scene and I just think it's really well shot. I, I thought the room was really an interesting part of what gave that scene its character. So I'm going to go with that one. Best scene, Chad. The chariot race. It's the best chariot race of all time and up there on the best races of all time. Yeah, yeah. Right up there with rat race. <laughs> I love rat race. I do too. Um, <laughs> Brian, uh, best scene. I, I don't think you can really go further than the the chariot scene in this it's it's iconic i mean it's it's what made this movie memorable uh many many decades after it came out i thought you were gonna go with the uh the naval scene <laughs> <laughs> i should have <laughs> like you, you have done that <laughs> On the Royal Tenenbaums episode, like you, you gave it very middling reviews, and then you're like three point five, and then my, <laughs> Jordan and I looked at each other, it's like, where did that come from? Russell is a dog with a bone with this criticism. <laughs> I'm also going with the chariot race. It is amazing for all the reasons that you guys have said. It's exciting. It's long. It's epic. It's it, the wide widescreen format also really lends itself to all that's going on. Um, so many good shots in it. This made me feel like. Romans at the Colosseum, even though we're not in the Colosseum. Change one thing. Brian. I would take a little bit of, uh, uh, of editing to this to, to remove a little bit of length. There's, there's definitely some, some easy belly fat to this film that I, I'm fine with it being a long movie. I mean, like I said, it's, it's a fantastic film, but you can take 30 minutes out of this without even blinking an eye. It's worth mentioning that this was trimmed down the yeah. book's actually considerably longer it goes well past this movie this movie cuts off and chooses a different place to end the movie as well as it removes a lot of other stuff so this must be a behemoth of a read it was like four hours and 15 minutes before they edited it mm. so. yeah so yes. normally brian asked for the extended edition 
Yeah, I do. I do. I typically do. <laughs> I just, I just mean that there's, there's visibly like, there's just easy stuff where you're like, yeah, don't need that. Oh yeah. Don't need that. Don't need that. Okay. Kind of, kind of, kind of like this podcast episode. Oh. oh wow. Almost. This is my fault. This is not a critique on you guys. Chad, change one thing. Uh, I've talked about this before. Uh, Jesus is central to this story. It is a story of Jesus's redeeming love, but. I don't think we needed to start at the nativity just for the sake of time. Like Brian was saying, there are things that could be cut. We can easily establish multiple times throughout this movie that we are in the time of Jesus. Even when they go up to Joseph and they're like, shouldn't your son be working? And he delivers that really cheesy line of, oh, he's working. (laughs) But we could have gotten it with uh, Joseph from the house of David and Here's my wife, Mary, and oh, yeah, her son's going to be a carpenter, too. But you got to keep in mind, that's what's selling the tickets, though, at this point. Like, without that, we don't save MGM. He's, he's, I'm not saying cut Jesus. This is his, this is a story of the Christ. Just cut the first birth that, part. That title is very confusing, at least in this rendition. It's, it's, it's a story of Ben Judah, or sorry, I'm mean, Judah Ben Hur, but yeah. I, no, Jesus is central to this, just the nativity didn't need okay. to happen. For me, despite I actually wanted to say make Masala and Judah just a little less chummy, just dial it down a little bit. But I covered that one earlier, so I'm I'm actually going to say the leper plot is a little too indulgent. I feel like (laughs) this is where I want to make my cut because I'm going to go along with you guys Mm. and say there's some opportunities to make some cuts. But I feel like we dredged through the leper colony a little too much. I feel like this is where the movie, if at any point there's a little bit of drag it's just kind of like oh okay masala's dead this was a dramatic finish and then like okay okay then we're then you get to the crucifixion and then things end up so you can't totally remove the leper part of the story but i feel like we live it we we wade through these waters for longer than i'd like is that fair yeah, you could have cut the Esther visiting the first time and then just have him visit the second time. Oh, whenever yeah. Masala. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's actually... I agree with that. Yeah, you've, you've actually once again stated what I was feeling better than I did. Best quote, Chad. One wife. One God I can understand. But one wife is not civilized. It is not generous. <laughs> well delivered. Um, Brian, best quote. I'm going to go with... Um, the Ben Hur Esther part where he says, if you were not a bride, I would kiss you goodbye. And she said, if I were not a bride, there would be no goodbyes to be said. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yep. I, I was going to be mine. So I've got a runner up that I wanted to give a nod to, but seeing as how you pick that, I'll give this one. Uh, Quintus Arius says, why did you save me? And Judah says, why did you have me unchained? And then they kind of quarrel a little bit. He tries to kill himself. And Quintus says, uh, what's your name? 41 Judah Ben Hur. And Quintus says, uh, Judah Ben-Hur, let me die. And then, ironically so, Judah Ben-Hur says, we keep you alive to serve this ship. Bro well and live. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Which is what Quintus told the ship earlier. So, excellent callback. I told you this is just one of the parts of the movie I really love. It's come time to rate this movie on a five-star scale. Brian, what do you rate Ben-Hur? This is going to be my, I, I think this is going to be my first five-star movie. All right. Wow. Wow. Wait, no, I don't think it is your first five-star movie. But, all right. Yeah. Congratulations. Woo. You are stingy with them. I am. I am very stingy with them. Chad, 
what do you rate this movie? Yeah, it's a five out of five for me as well. Part of it is I I love sword and sandal flicks. Gladiator is my favorite film. I enjoy Troy mm. Fry, <laughs> uh, Alexander notwithstanding. Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, it's got important historical context. There's there's a lot there for someone that loves uh, ancient Greece and Rome, and you know as a Christian as well, um, the message of Christ is really hits home for me. And Judah's interaction of how. The sword had been taken out of his hand after meeting the Prince of Peace and the final shots of the crosses with the shepherd leading the sheep. It's all beautiful. I love it. Yeah. And for the record, Brian, you gave a five to Goldeneye. Deserved. Oh, yeah. Gotta do but that movie. I'm going to make it uh, straight fives and give Ben-Hur also a five star. This movie does so much. It takes you on an emotional journey. It has the love between Esther and Judah. You go through the trudges of this turmoil of like, you know, being put into slavery and then coming out of it on top. Uh, there's the revenge element of coming back to Masala. And then as Chad mentioned, there's the, um, the religious side. Uh, it is one movie that just does so much and love that score. I just want to say that one more time. It, it's the tie that binds this whole thing. So, yeah. um, Five stars. Excellent. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie? I do. Next time, uh, we're going to go to, we're going to get science fictional with it. Option number one, Gattaca from 1997. A genetically inferior man assumes the identity of a superior one in order to pursue his lifelong dream of space travel. Option two, Avatar from 2009. A paraplegic marine dispatched on the moon of Pandora uh, on a unique mission becomes torn between following his orders and protecting the world he feels is his home. Option three, E.T., the extraterrestrial, from 1982. A troublesome child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. I've got a hankering for Reese's Pieces, so I have to go with E.T. Phone home. Absolutely. Wow, this was epic in its own right. Brian, thank you for being on with me. Chad, thank you so much. Yep. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure, Russ. So to all the listeners out there, remember, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us on Facebook, which Brian is an avid user of, and <laughs> tell us what you thought about Ben-Hur. Tell us whether you didn't like it, where you wanted to cut. Tell us what kind of movies you want to see. Just communicate with us. We like that. So reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, give us a show, like on the show. Email us at RetroMovieRoundTable at Yahoo.com. If you like the show want to be on the show, please give us a review and rating and subscription on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. also now on YouTube. And as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? As Wichita Falls, so falls Wichita Falls.